Well, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, and as I said, next week, next uh, Saturday, actually, we will celebrate as a nation our independence, uh, our freedom, and we are a free people and love our independence. And I say that because this morning, the passage that we're going to look at is a very non-independence-like passage. Um, It is uh, talking about how to live in this new kingdom, and it kind of uh, flies in the face of kind of uh, exalting our personal rights. So uh, that said, uh, open with me again to chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 18 all the way through the first verse of chapter 4, and then we will talk about it uh, this morning. So, Colossians 3, uh, beginning at verse 18. And why don't we do this? Why don't we stand again in honor and respect of God's word? If you're able, uh, join me in standing and I'll read it for us. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. So as uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1863 delivered that famous, brief but famous uh, Gettysburg Address, he began that speech uh, with these words. You know them, many of you. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. You know that, and many of us memorize that, right, as we grew up in school, probably. But in that speech, that famous speech, Abraham Lincoln hearkens back to the forming document of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, to ground his proposition uh, in the abolition of slavery, He goes back to the Declaration of Independence to use those words, all men are created equal. And that grounded his argument, and that also grounded the argument of Martin Luther King Jr. as he fought for civil rights for African Americans in the 60s. He went not only to our founding documents, but he also went to the scriptures. 
And he went back to the beginning of the scriptures, as advocates of human rights have often done, to anchor human rights and anchor civil rights in Genesis 1 and 2, where the scriptures tell us that God created man and woman in God's image, in his likeness. And so if there's any doubt about the equality of of man and woman and child and, and parents, we go back to that founding chapter, that beginning uh, first and second chapter of our scriptures where we see that we were created, all of us created in the image of God and therefore of worth and value. And as I say that, we look at this passage today, which kind of rubs against our American spirit of absolute freedom and personal autonomy. Because in this passage, Paul is talking about how to live as the people of God, live in the church and and in the home. And he is making the point that as followers of Jesus, sometimes we submit our rights over for the good of the group and for the good of the community. And he is not saying that, that some people are more worthy than others or, or just men have dignity before God, but he is saying this is the way to live harmoniously as you follow Jesus. And this, again, uh, rubs us because of those first words directed towards wives and then also the last verses that talk about bond servants, uh, and in some translations, even translated slaves. So let's uh, jump into this very tricky passage on this week of freedom and think about it uh, biblically. Let me start by uh, making just a couple of preliminary statements, okay? Statement number one is, first of all, there is no such thing as total autonomy and freedom, okay? And we love freedom, let freedom ring. But if you think about it, there's really no such thing as total autonomy and freedom. What are you saying, Ross? First of all, let me give you an illustration uh, like this. When you got married, many of us in this room are married, some not uh, married, but when you get married, you use that freedom of getting married to, to someone, but as you make, as you come into that covenant of marriage, you suspend or you give up certain other freedoms to enjoy the freedom of marriage, right? So as we enter the marriage covenant, we are free to be married, but as we come into that marriage covenant, we are now no longer free to date around, or have other similar relationships. Why? Because we are enjoying freedom, and the freedom, the the covenant of marriage, therefore restricts some other freedoms that we might previously had. Uh, When you have kids, you find out that your freedoms are now restricted because you have new obligations. 
So there's no longer autonomy or the right to say, hey, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to stay out as late as I want. I'm going to let them kind of fend for themselves, go to the grocery store, get, you know, all the junk food they want, and I'm just going to kick my feet up and watch TV. Now, as a parent who has entered this freedom of being a parent, you then are restricted by other things. Same thing uh, with a job. You enjoy a job, you then uh, are no longer able to sleep in until noon or whenever you would like, or just kind of show up uh, however you wish, because you have this new experience, this new relationship you are restricted in other ways. That's another one, silly one that continues to come up in our house is that, that you know, now we're dog owners and we've been dog owners and, so, and we make these plans, but then we find out that, you know, we're going to go do something. Oh, what, but who's going to watch the dog? Because the enjoyment of having gray has also restricted us in some sense. And there really is no total autonomy or freedom uh, as people people often think about it. Secondly, uh, freedom is is not the highest or the only God-given virtue. Uh, we love freedom, and freedom is a good thing, but there are other values that we should value and that the scriptures teach us to value, virtues like loyalty and faithfulness. And so if you're in that marriage covenant and you want to be totally free as it were, to enjoy relations with other. No, you have, a, you have another virtue of loyalty or faithfulness in your marriage that disallows you from that. Uh, love, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, and love costs. Love requires us often to sacrifice our good or sacrifice our conveniences for the good of others. Even the freedom that we have as a nation was won by soldiers who sacrificed their freedoms, who put their freedoms on hold and, and, and gave of themselves and, and put their lives on the line so that you and I and others could enjoy freedom. We exercise freedom, but we also limit uh, our freedoms elsewhere. So in this passage, uh, it kind of breaks down uh, into three pairs of instructions. We have the instructions to wives and husbands, and then you have instructions to children and fathers, and then finally, bondservants and masters, okay? So we'll begin uh, looking, first of all, at the first pair of wives and husbands. And again, verse 18 and 19, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, now, first of all, as we talk to the wives, husbands, I don't want to see you uh, elbowing or looking at your wives, staring them at them right now. Even if you're watching online, I, I can see you, I know. But uh, let me speak to the women without you uh, needling them, okay? But Paul says here, wives, submit to your husbands. And the word here is hupotasso, and it means to, to honor or to come under the order of your husbands, to respect your husbands by placing yourselves under yourself under them. And you'll notice that the motivation is tied here, not just because Paul thinks, hey, this is how 
marriage should work, but he says, as is fitting in the Lord. And this uh, motivation you see over and over in this passage, in fact, six times we see this phrase to do this as unto the Lord. If you'll put those on the screen there, Kyle. Verse 18, as fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord, or do this fearing the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Christ, and then knowing that you are you have a master or Lord uh, in heaven. So all of these instructions are giving to us to say, do this in light of who Jesus is. Submit and honor your husband because that's fitting in the Lord. It's what Jesus would have you do. And guess what? Here is the rest of the story. Though it says submit here, guess what? Submission is the role of all of us in all of our relations. We won't flip there, but the parallel passage here, Ephesians 5, verse 21, it says submit to one another out of reverence for God. Before Paul begins the, hey, wives, submit to your husbands, he begins that in verse 21 by saying, submit to one another. Submission is not only and always wives to husbands, but submission is brother to sister, husband to wife, to one another. We submit, we honor one another because that is fitting in the Lord. And secondly, we know this is not against the dignity of of wives or the, the dignity of women because who do we know that was equal with the Father and yet submitted himself to the Father? Our Savior, Jesus himself, submitted himself to the plan of the Father. He gave up his rights, his prerogatives, and humbled himself and submitted himself to the plan of God. Even Jesus submitted. And though this word is not popular in our days, uh, it's the S word, so to speak, it's here. And Jesus is saying, this is a way to have a healthy community. This is a way to have a healthy marriage. Can it be abused? Absolutely, and it has. But the precaution for that comes in the next verse as he talks about husbands. And he says, husbands, love your wives. And again, the full text of this uh, parallel passage, go to Ephesians chapter 5, where for eight verses, Paul there uh, expounds more than he does to the wives, to the, to the husbands, to love their wives and actually to, to love their wives as their own body and not just love their wives as their own body, but be willing to sacrifice and lay your life down for your spouse, for your wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, sacrificed himself for the church. And husbands, if we have a a kind of sacrificial love for our wives, they will honor us. They will respect that if we love as Christ himself has loved the church. He goes on not only uh, in the positive sense to say, husbands, love your wives. And he goes on in the negative sense to say, don't be harsh with them. Just because you're bigger, just because your voice is louder, just because you're probably stronger, don't be harsh with your wife. And you have to think, because verse 18 is so controversial in our modern context today, verse 19 was what was so controversial in the first century because Paul is saying, hey, husbands, love your wives. 
They're not your property. They're co-equal with you. Image bearers of God, love them and do not be harsh to them. And this was a Christian example and a, a Christian model in the first century that was more countercultural than verse 18 was. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Another text, we won't flip there, but 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, Peter also warns you to live with your wives in an understanding way. And he says, do this or guess what? Your prayers will be hindered if you don't. Live with your wives in an understanding way or God won't listen to your prayers. That's pretty strong language. Again, counter-cultural. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, children, your turn. Here we go. Verse 20. All eyes up here, all ears here. Children, obey your parents and then underline in everything, okay? Uh, I'm kind of being funny, but children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Here's the motivation again for this pleases the Lord. Why, children, obey your parents in everything? Because this pleases the Lord. Again, God has created all people equally, but he has also given authority structure in homes and in government. And it is good for us to fall in line to the good God-given authority that God has given us. Again, good God-given authority. So, children... Obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Some of this is cultural in the way that children would obey or dads would respond to children. Some of us grew up in eras where the kind of cultural motto was children should be seen but not heard. And if that was kind of one extreme and kind of you know, modern day now, it's some of the emphasis is just kind of let kids make their choices, which is a, is a good thing, but don't squelch their creativity and don't, you know, hold them back. But here is a, is a good warning to us as parents that our children are to obey us for this pleases the Lord. And how big of a deal is this? Well, I like to when talking about this, to take people to Romans chapter 1. And many of you will be familiar with Romans chapter 1 because it talks about just the, the sinfulness of humanity. And it's, it's fascinating to me how Paul lumps in with all these other sins in Romans chapter 1, how people exchange what's natural and give themselves over to what's unnatural. But if you look... Uh, excuse me, I lost my place here, uh, in verse 30 of Romans chapter 1, or actually back up to verse 28. He says, uh, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave, them up, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, now, are those bad things? Everybody agree? Those are sin, evil, covetousness, malice. We talked about that in Colossians chapter 3. He goes on, full of envy, 
murder. Is that a bad one? Murder, yeah. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Hey, how bad is gossip? It's right here in this list. Gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And then what's next? Inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. Right in the midst of all this description of of evil, the Apostle Paul says they are disobedient to their parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And yet, dads, and it's interesting in verse 21 that he doesn't, Paul doesn't just say parents, but he he actually directs his commands, he directs his admonition to fathers. And he says both negatively and positively, well, here actually, excuse me, just negatively, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to repeat this, but he's going to give also the positive aspect of it where he's going to say, don't exasperate your children or provoke your children. But then he's going to, on the positive side, he's going to say, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord or the training and the instruction of the Lord. What is he telling us, fathers? He's saying our role is is to parent, is to father our children not just mom's job, but dad's, our job too is not just to bring home the bacon, pay the bills, right? But to father these little ones. And that involves instruction, discipline. It also involves though, not provoking them or exasperating them. Why would Paul have to say something like this to dads? Because for centuries and millennia, dads have fought to two simultaneous tendencies and temptations, and that is towards passivity and that is towards aggressiveness. So he says, dads, don't be overly aggressive. Don't be harsh with your wife. Don't provoke your kids to anger or to embarrassment or to discouragement. But dads, be gentle. And again, countercultural in the first century. Dads, treat those little ones with value. As Jesus said, let the little children come to me, right? As I thought about it this week, I think there's two ways that dads, we, uh, we can provoke our children or exasperate our children. The first one is by excessive correcting or coaching. Can embitter our children. Excessive coaching or correcting. I say this one first because I think it's probably the one I struggle with less than the one I'm getting ready to tell you about. But all of us have seen those dads in the after the game, the kid comes off the sidelines and dad is just excessively coaching, excessively correcting, just being harsh. Son, you did this. You 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 missed that play. You. You, you turn too quick. You had your eye off the ball, whatever it is. Excessive coaching and correcting can discourage and embitter our kids. But there's a second one that I'm more guilty of, and that's excessive joking and teasing. 
that you can discourage your kids by making lights, by making fun, by poking at little things will discourage them. Dads, be involved. Dads, be careful and be gentle. And then finally, this most controversial pair uh, of bond servants and masters where there's the most space devoted in verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 to this idea of bond servants and masters. And of course, uh, the question and the objection comes up, what, why does the Bible seem to condone servitude or slavery? And this is difficult, I, I think helpful here, as I found helpful this week, uh, in your ESV Bible, and many of us use the ESV Bible, that's the translation that we adopted several years ago here uh, as a church. But these words for bond servant or slave or servant is, is usually just one word in the Greek. But the translators of the ESV in the preface of your Bible have given you a little note, and you probably haven't gone back to read the preface of your Bible, but you should because it's helpful sometimes. And so the translators tell you that this word, doulos, is sometimes translated servant, sometimes bondservant, and sometimes slave. And here it is rightfully interpreted bondservant because a bondservant isn't just a servant and a bondservant also isn't a slave. So listen to the words of the ESV uh, here. Well, actually, I just kind of said it for you. I don't need to repeat that. But basically, your, your, your New Testament translators are helping you understand uh, how to think about this idea of servanthood and slavery. A couple things about this. Uh, first of all, when you read about bond servants or slaves in the, New Test in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, number one, don't immediately think of 19th century American slavery, okay? Chattel slavery. Uh, the slavery in the New Testament and the Roman world was not like the slavery that we know about in our own nation's history. So don't immediately think in those types of terms, okay? Uh, in fact, in the first century in the Roman world, it's estimated that between 80 and 90% of the population were what we would call bond servants or what is translated bond servants here. And so these bond servants uh, had certain rights that never existed in Hebrew slavery uh, or certainly in American slave days. So listen to one commentator here. He says, 80 to 90% of Rome's population consisted of slaves or bond servants. Although these slaves were considered by their master's property and didn't have legal rights, they did have quite a range of other rights and privileges. These included the possibility of starting a business to earn potentially large sums of money. Number two, the capability of earning money to eventually purchase freedom, manumission, you may have heard of. Uh, and thirdly, the right to own property. So opportunity to make money, the 
opportunity to buy themselves out of bond servitude, and thirdly, the right to own property themselves. Those freedoms often were not afforded at all in what we think of in 19th century American slavery. He goes on, it says, the work of slaves covered the spectrum from horrid conditions in mines to artisans, business agents, and other positions of respect and prestige, such as civil or imperial servants. So slavery wasn't unkind to all slaves in the Roman Empire, all right? So uh, don't automatically think about that kind of slavery. Secondly, keep in mind that as Paul writes here, keep in mind Paul's audience and his purpose, his audience and his purpose. And he is writing, his audience is to the church. He is not writing to civic leaders. He is not writing to the Roman emperor. He's, he's not concerned. His, his purpose and his intent here is not to uh, overturn the social structures of his day, but to inform and to teach and to guide uh, the believers, even the believing masters and bondservants, at this time. Now, you and I would wish in 2020 that the Bible would be more emphatic or more clear that slavery and servitude is wrong. We, we would want that. And it doesn't go as clear or as often as we would hope, but it does get there. And in fact, the most clearest indication the most clearest, the clearest indication, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, okay? Again, Paul writing another letter later after he's written Colossians. Uh, he's talking about the use of the law in 1 Timothy, and he says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, okay? And how is he going to describe those folks? Ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Okay, don't do that. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then next, your translation, if you have the ESV, says enslavers enslavers, or other translations say slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So there it is very clearly from the Apostle Paul that slave trading is unholy and ungodly, that it's against the dignity of men and women, as we know about from our founding chapters of our Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, where we know that all men and women and children are created in the image of God. And then finally, let me make this statement. Consider also the countercultural nature of Paul's statements here, both then and now. Countercultural then and now. We already talked about one of them, but the, the whole emphasis of, of husbands loving your wives and being gentle with your wives and not harsh, counter-cultural. And then you're going to get to chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul writes, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And he's saying, Masters, business owners, treat your bond servants, treat your employees justly and fairly. 
Some commentators say this is probably a more radical statement than the statement that he gives bondservants to offer loyalty and honor to their masters. If you're a master, if you're an employer, treat those under your care with care, justly and fairly, because you also have a master, and that master is just and fair, is he not? Our master, our Lord, is so good, is so just, that he himself humbled himself, giving up his rights, setting aside what he could demand, worship, and coming and dying on a cross for those who had rejected him. And the whole emphasis of Paul here is that, yes, we are dignified image bearers of God. And sometimes the way to make the community work is by by setting aside your preferences, by setting aside your rights in order to honor someone else. That's the way community works. That's the way family works. That Jesus himself offered himself, submitted himself for the plan of the Father and for the good of his people. That may be countercultural, but it's good. So finally, by way of application, let me uh, just say a couple more things. First of all, we have an ultimate master. And as followers of Jesus, all of our life falls under his preeminence. All of our life falls under his preeminence. And that's his aim in Colossians is saying, chapter one, Jesus is preeminent, therefore live like this. And sometimes that means honoring someone else above yourself, giving up your freedoms or your rights, not unjustly, but as Jesus would in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. We have been trained and taught to assert ourselves. And the scriptures would tell us sometimes we should rather humble ourselves. We have been taught to demand our rights. The scriptures would teach us that sometimes we should limit our freedoms. So I want to ask you this morning uh, in closing, as the band comes forward to lead us again in song. Let me ask you just to take a few minutes and to think about the relationships or a relationship in your life right now. Maybe it's one that's difficult. Maybe it's one that's a little bit strained. And I want to ask you to consider two questions as you examine your relationships this morning. First question is, how do I honor and display the lordship of Jesus 
in this relationship or in this position? How do I honor and display the lordship of Jesus in this relationship or in this position that I have? And then secondly, you're thinking about perhaps a difficult relationship or a strained relationship. Let me ask you this second question. Where do I desire to express power or position when perhaps I need to exhibit humility? Okay, let me say that again. Where do I desire to express power or assert my position when perhaps I need to exhibit humility? Think about that for just a moment. We follow and we serve and we worship a humble king. You ever thought about those two words together? A humble king. How cannot his followers also be humble servants of our humble king? Let's pray. Jesus, you loved us, you came for us, you sacrificed yourself on our, on our behalf. Jesus, you put your rights aside for our good. Help us, Lord Jesus, to use our power for love. Help us to use our position to promote justice and freedom. Jesus, help us to exhibit and demonstrate your lordship, your humble kingship through our humble lives. God, we pray for our world. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, we pray, your will be done your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in your beautiful name we pray.